Morning. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Mike McKinney. I'm one of the pastors here, one of the elders here, along with um, Pastor Mike Reed and John Ido and Don Hoitzma. Um, it feels kind of, in light of what, we, what Pastor Mike was just talking about, it feels kind of uh, crazy to be preaching right now. It's, you kind of wonder, shouldn't we be over there helping? And, but in reality, um, the reason why what we're doing right now, which is preaching from the Word of God, is that what moments like this in Haiti do, does is it reminds you of the utter fragility of life. Um, the utter, the sinking sand of life that is today. And so the most sane thing we could ever do is point to the only thing that is unshakable, which is the creator and sustainer of the universe revealed most clearly in Jesus Christ, his son. Um, so I'm going to ask for God's help uh, to do that as, uh, as we begin. So if you guys wouldn't mind just bowing your heads in prayer. Father, I thank you so much for this that you have spoken in a book and that we can read about your glories and your all-sustaining hand, especially in shocking moments like what people are experiencing in Haiti. I pray, Lord, that although we are here, we know, Lord, that you are everywhere. And pray that your spirit would be near those who are this moment going through living nightmares in Haiti. In spirit, you would draw your son near to them Make yourself present clearly in power and comfort. And grant them a heart that sees the, the unshakable, imperishable hope that is to come in your son, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would help me to um, preach clearly, preach from a heart that loves Jesus, make these people's hearts ready to hear and to rejoice in your son. Father, I'm not infallible, so uh, protect my mouth as I speak today. If I say anything that is wrong or in error, that you would guard their hearts from that. Thank you for this privilege. Holy Spirit, help now. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I'm gonna, we're going to be in uh, Mark chapter 12. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to turn, turn your, uh, in your Bibles to Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 34. As a church, we've been going through the Gospel of Luke, and we're about three-quarter-ish of the way. We're almost there. Um, and we're going to actually do a, a timeout in the next five weeks, I believe. Next week, actually. We're going to start next week, about five-week series on the rhythms of worship, why we come to church, why we worship, why we sing, why we preach, why we take the Lord's Supper, baptism, uh, and things like that. I'm just going to be taking... Uh, kind of a, what's called a standalone sermon, where I just preach from something that has nothing to do with what the series of Gospel of Luke or the series next week. Um, just a short little break, and it's, it's primarily going to be focused on what does it mean to love God? A very simple question, um, but if you're honest and you ask yourself, what does that mean? We, there are answers all over the place. Um, but let me just read the passage before we dive in. Verses 28 through 34. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, he asked him, that's Jesus, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important commandment is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and that there is no other besides him and to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding 
and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Um, I'm just going to keep this really simple. I'm going to make just a couple observations that I see in this passage, make a conclusion, and then we're just going to, at the end, apply this to our lives, different ways that it applies to our lives. Um, The first observation that I see whenever I I said this, this text this past week was, number one, that loving God is the most important thing a human being could ever do. It's pretty obvious, but there's two reasons why it's the most important thing that any human being could ever do. The first reason is because it is the most important commandment from God. When Jesus says in verse 30, actually 29, excuse me, Jesus answered, the most important is, and then verse 30, you shall love the Lord your God. When he says commandment, he's talking about something that obviously God has commanded the whole human race to abide by. As the ultimate authority of the universe, he has total rights to place obligations upon us as human beings. In all commandments, above all the commandments, the most important is to love God. Nothing goes higher. Every man, every woman, every child that exists on the planet in the past, present, and future, this should be top priority, loving God. And just in case you're one of those people who think that God is some, for some reason telling us to love him because he is he's desperate for love or needs acceptance or whatever, Acts 17, 25 says that God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. He needs nothing. So why is he telling us to love him? Because what could be better than to love our maker? The second reason that loving God is the most important thing you could do is because if you don't, you will not live forever with God, but forever from God. If you notice in verse 34... After the scribe so elegantly just simply affirms the right commandment, Jesus says to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. He did not say that he's in. He's close, but he's not in. He's not far. He recognizes the most important thing to do, but he's not actually doing the most important thing, which is loving God. If you don't love God, although you may be close to the kingdom of God, you are not in Listen to how Luke 10, 25 through 28 puts it positively. It's not going to be up here. So my encouragement, this is, I didn't plan on saying this, but just side note here. Um, I personally don't encourage note-taking during sermons um, because the main goal in sermons is not to gather information, but to have a worshipful moment of Jesus Christ in the moment. So uh, I'm going to be going through lots of texts of Scripture today. My encouragement would just be to, to just listen and just Let your heart be impacted by what the scriptures are saying today. Listen to how Luke 10, 25 through 28 puts this positively about if you don't love God, you will live forever from him, not with him. Luke 10, 25, 28. And behold, a lawyer stood up and to put Jesus to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, this is what Jesus says, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. If you love God, you will live forever with him. Listen to how 1 Corinthians 16.22 puts it negatively. This is a very shocking verse. If anyone does not love the Lord, let him be accursed. If anyone does not love the Lord, let him be accursed. The word accursed means anathema, means devoted to destruction. Why is the failing to love Christ determines your eternal destiny? Because in Luke 16, verse 13, 
Jesus answers that question for us. No servant can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. If you do not love Jesus Christ, you will necessarily by default love something else and by default hate him. If you are devoted to something else besides Jesus Christ, in your heart that is, you will necessarily despise him. And heaven is a place for those who love God. The reason love for Christ is essential for salvation is because if you don't love him most of all, you will despise him and love something else more. Just reminds me of what's happening in Haiti. And um, when I see moments like this, when I see tragedies like this, it makes me instantly think, not that I should cling more tightly to this world, but more tightly to God. Because there's something about seeing that stuff that makes you think, What makes me think that I don't deserve that? Were they worse people than me? Am I better than them that they got that and I didn't get that? Of course not. It reminds me that unless I repent and love Christ, I too will perish. That's the first observation. Loving God is the most important thing you could ever do. Second, The God you are commanded to love is not just any God, but the God of the Bible and none other. It says in verse 29, Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So he centers, he focuses the commandment upon the one true God. The God of the Bible is the one true God. Allah is not God. Joseph Smith is not God. Brahma is not God. Buddha is not God. The pantheistic all-spirit of Oprah is not God. (laughs) Seriously, though. Jesus is not a pluralist. He focused the most important commandment upon the one true God who is revealed exclusively in the 66 books of the Old and New Testament. And when you get to the New Testament, this one true God is seen exclusively in the face of Jesus Christ. There. Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. So, It's the most important thing you could ever do. And it needs to be focused on the one true God, specifically in the face of Jesus Christ. But the bulk of our time is going to be spent asking the question, what does it really actually mean to love God? It may seem like a basic question, but I I teach Bible at Eastern Christian, and I ask this question all the time. Hey guys, what does it mean to love God? And the answers I get are just scattered. What does it mean to love God? This is the most important commandment, and we have trouble defining it. So I'm going to say a couple things that it's not, and then I'm going to come to a final conclusion in explaining what it is and what it means for us. Loving God is not external obedience. Loving God is not external obedience outward obedience and conformity to his commandments. Because if you look in verse 33, the scribe says to Jesus, he affirms the commandment and he says, this is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Why would he say that? This is another way of saying God could care less about your sacrifices and your religious things you do if your heart is not burning with love for him. You could sacrifice 16,000 bulls and your heart could be attached to something else and God says, means nothing. John 14, 15. Basic verse, 
but kind of profound. John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Those are two different things. If you love me, that's one thing. You will keep my commandments. That's another thing. If you do A, you will do B. A is not B, B is not A. Would you guys agree? Is that good good logic there? (laughs) Doing things for God is not the essence of love for God. The essence. It produces obedience. It's not the essence of it, though. If doing things for God were essential to loving God, I, I bring this up to people all the time. If doing things with the essence of loving God, then how does a mute, paralyzed man love God? Are they at a disadvantage? If you define love primarily by doing things for God, then a paralyzed person who can do nothing is not able to do the most important thing that humans are able to do. Supposed to do, excuse me. You can do a lot of stuff for God with no desire for him at all. Have you ever done what someone has asked for you without any desire to do it at all? Yes, you obeyed them, but there was no love. Next, loving God is not merely having right knowledge of God. For it says in verse 30, with all your heart... And with all your mind. Yes, it does say with your mind, but it also includes things like your heart. And notice who Jesus is speaking with, verse 32. And the scribe said to him, this is like professor, top-notch theologian guy. Scribe were the people, or they were among the religious elite, who copied the Old Testament down, taught it, memorized. These men knew their stuff. They knew their Bibles. They had all the right knowledge of God, but do not love God. Jesus even affirms his knowledge, right? Verse 34 at the beginning. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he had right knowledge of God. But to put it more starkly, Luke 4, 41, says that even Satan and his demons know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But Jesus rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. Love for God cannot be, at its essence, knowledge of God. Because Satan has greater knowledge than all of us about Jesus and is totally lost and damned. It's not obedience at its essence, not knowledge at its essence. Let's start getting more positive, though. The affections of the heart are essential and necessary for loving God, and they must be very strong. For it says, heart and strength. It is not just about having affection for God, but the affection should be intense and on fire. Just listen to this slew of verses. Romans 12, 11. Do not be slothful in zeal. Zeal's passion. Be fervent in spirit, intense. The literal translation could be boil. Boiling in the spirit. Mark 7, 6 through 7. And Jesus said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. What's a hypocrite? As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me. He seems to be getting at the heart as the essence. Revelation 3, 15 through 16. I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either cold or hot, verse 16. So, because you are lukewarm 
and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. This is Jesus talking. What's causing him to spit people out at the end? The lukewarmness. Because you are lukewarm, that's the cause of the spitting out. 1 Peter 1, verse 8. Listen to all the things that he combines into one. Though you have not seen him, he's talking about Jesus, believers. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Every time I read this verse, I just want to die. I'm like, I, I have never, what is that? What is this? What is this rejoice with joy, inexpressible and filled with glory? What is that? And notice that he combines love, belief, and rejoicing and inexpressible joy. It's all into one. Faith in Christ is not, I believe. It is, <laughs> I believe. This is, I'm about to read you guys one of the most, probably one of the most important paragraphs I've ever read outside of the Bible by John Owen. It's a very mentally challenging paragraph, but that is okay. I'm serious, it's okay. I'm going to summarize at the end, but it's okay to be challenged. I had to read it about 67 times. Uh, here we go. It'll be up on the screen. It's talking about the affections of the heart and how utterly essential they are. Our affections are upon the matter, our all. They are all we have to give or bestow. The only power of our souls whereby we may give away ourselves from ourselves and become another's. By our affections, we can give away what we are and have. Hereby, we give our hearts unto God as he requires. Wherefore, unto him we give our affections, unto whom we give our all, ourselves and all that we have, and to whom we give them not. Whatever we give upon the matter, we give them nothing at all. If you're like, I think I got that. <laughs> Here's my summary, okay? Your desires, passions, and affections are the only thing you have that you can give someone that demonstrates your true love for them. So the only thing you can give to God that will truly honor him and demonstrate your love for him is your affections, desires, or passions. So you can give your money and your service to God. But if something else gets your heart pounding, you have given him nothing. It is St. Augustine who says, you are what you love. You are what you love. To put it controversially, love for God is all about how you feel about God. It's very unpopular in evangelicalism to talk about the feelings being so important. But when I read the Bible... I see commands to burn for God. Now, I'm about to say something that, that might confuse some people because um, I just said that the affections are so essential, but listen to this, okay? <laughs> Loving God is not merely having strong feelings for God. Let me show you a verse that's very important. First of all, it says, with all your heart and with all your mind, so it's not mindless. Romans 10, 1 through 2, this is Paul talking about his fellow Jews, how they're not saved, and he's grieving over them, and he is explaining why. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them 
is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. Remember Romans, what was it, 12, 11? Do not be slothful in zeal. He's like, yes, they have a zeal for God. Listen to this. But not according to knowledge. While they may have passions for God, they are on fire for God, man. But what's causing their zeal for God is something that is not true about God. Therefore, here's kind of the turning point, okay? Therefore, true love for God is the strongest heartfelt desire for him as your greatest joy, which is based upon true knowledge of him. Let me say that again. True love for God is the strongest heartfelt desire for him as your greatest joy. And that is based upon true knowledge of God. Put it to you this way. Affection for God without knowledge of God is mindless emotion. Knowledge of God without affection for God is heartless ritualism. Knowledge of God producing strong affections for God is love for God. Love for God is a mind full of truth creating a heart full of fire. And I believe it can be reduced to these three things, mind, heart, and those two things working together with great strength. Because if you remember what Jesus said, he, he included the soul in there. So what, what's up with the soul thing, right? With all your soul. But if you notice, when the scribe repeated the, the command, he said this, to love God with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, period. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he did not say, actually, scribe, sir, you forgot the soul. I think it's because the soul is all of those things combined into one. So even Jesus affirms the three reduction thing, mind, heart, and those things working together with great intensity. Love for God is supreme delight in God Fueled by rich doctrine about God. Love for God is passionate doxology produced by big theology. And they can never be divorced. Or it's no longer love for God. To put it into an analogy... Knowledge of God is the wood in the fire pit. You see them in the fire pit, the logs? The affections for God is the actual fire. And the intensity of the affection is the heat of the flames. The more wood, the bigger the fire, the greater the heat. Without the wood, there's no fire. There may be some fumes that poof, like, it bursts really quickly, but if there's no wood, it's not going to sustain itself. So, the only way for your love and affection for God to truly honor him and make much of him is that those affections are deeply passionate and are produced by correct thoughts about God. Your affections for him must be the direct result of your knowledge of him. If right now you're kind of like, okay, I think I'm following you. You're kind of high up here right now. Can you just kind of give me an example on the ground? Yes. My wife, Karen, has, she doesn't know that I'm using this as an example, so. Whoops. Um, my wife has dark hair, a darker complexion, and dark brown eyes. When I first noticed her at Wheaton College, and I mean noticed her, um, <laughs> I thought she was Hispanic. <laughs> I thought she was Hispanic. She's Italian. 
When she found out that I thought she was Hispanic, she was deeply insulted. <laughs> Nothing against Hispanics at all. I'm not... But imagine if I went, we went the entire, our entire relationship, and I believed she was Hispanic, and I like loved that she was Hispanic. <laughs> and then we were about to get married, and I say, you know what, I have never told you this. I just love that you're, you're Hispanic background. <laughs> I didn't think you guys would laugh this much. Uh, <laughs> would, if I, t and she's like, what? Would you say, now, now listen, my belief about her, I, I really loved that belief. Would you say that my love for her honored her? Of course not. Because what was causing my affection for that was based upon false knowledge of her. It's no different with God, friends. So, we may think we love God when our knowledge of him is either inaccurate, so you believe false things about him, or it's insignificant, so your knowledge of him is small and makes him seem like a nice like, addition to your already wonderful life. It may be infrequent. So you may have some accurate knowledge of God, but he may never cross your mind. When I was, my first year of marriage, Karen and I, I, I we went to this church, um, and I was in this small group, and there was this grown man, maybe in his 50s. And uh, we were talking about this issue right here, loving God and love for God. And the whole time he was just quiet staring at us, and he spoke up and he said, there are times when I get in bed and I realize I haven't thought about God once today, and the, the grief in his heart, does, does that describe you? I mean, do you ever, does, it, does God even cross your mind at all throughout the day? How frequently do you think of him? Or you may think you have enough knowledge of him. I call this the just tell me what I need to know to get an A on the test, Christianity. Seriously, for real. Gospel, check. Okay, got it. Bible's word of God, check. Got it. Okay, I believe both of those, check. Okay, no more theology, please. Just give me some stuff to do. No more, please. Just give me something practical. Tell me how to do marriage. Tell me how to do my kids, which is great. But let me just say this. You were not created primarily to do, but to delight. Yes, you should do. But primarily, you meant to delight in God. And that overwhelming passion for him is meant to result in great sacrificial acts of love for others. But the essence is the delight in God. On the other hand, you may have a PhD in New Testament Greek exegesis teaching at Harvard. But God may hold his nose at the stench of your hypocritical heart because it is utterly empty of any affection for him at all. Or you may have accurate knowledge of him, but when you gauge the intensity of your heart and are honest, the thing that ignites your affections most is not Christ's sin-bearing, wrath-absorbing, eternally securing of your enjoyment of God for all eternity, atonement. But what rather gets your heart pumping is a new Amazon purchase, clicking on internet nudity, a Netflix binge, the stock market, fantasy football, or daydreaming about another relationship or life circumstances. So maybe the head is full, but the heart is empty, or it is thrilled with another idol. So, what should we do? What should we do? And this is where we're going to start landing the plane. Okay? Um, if love for God, in its essence, is passionate affections of delight created by biblical truth and theology then we must do it with all of our might. 
God commands us to direct our greatest affection toward him. Here's the catch, okay? This is the catch. The greatest command of all is to love him with all of our affection. But who in here can control their affections? Like, here's an example. Any Giants fans in here? Okay? If I told you, I command you to stop loving the Giants and to start loving the Jets. Some of you are like, "Mm mm-mm, you did not just say that. (laughs) We think that's crazy because no one can, like, like, no one can, like, change their heart loves. You can't change what your heart loves. It loves what it loves. It simply wants what it wants or else it does not care. I think Emily Dickinson said that. That wasn't even in my notes. Um, (laughs) It just came to my mind. So how do we do what we cannot control? Right? How do we do what we cannot control? The key is to remember what our love for God is to be caused by our knowledge of God. So, here's the key. While we cannot control our affections, we can control what we know about God. To go back to the fire analogy, you cannot have white hot flames without logs in the fire pit. We can't control the fire to, to be, become lit. That's the Holy Spirit's job. But if there's no logs in the fire, for sure there's going to be no fire. This means that knowing God is of utmost importance for us because the only way we can have passionate, God-glorifying affections for him is if we know him rightly. Knowing truth about God is not the goal. The affections for God are the goal. But you can't have the affections without the knowledge. So even though we cannot control the affections, we can control the only thing that would produce true love for God, filling our minds with truth about God. So, practical things, okay? Number one, get to know the God of the Bible. And be a first-hander, not a second-hander. Like, you yourself actually read the words of the book. I have, I kind of don't have anything against Jesus calling. I mean, it's great. But if that's all that it is, that's total, that's, you're getting everything secondhand as opposed to speaking with God where his words are actually on the page. Start reading it. I realize some people say, I don't know how to. Just do it. Just start and seek help. Find, if you've got got to find someone else to help you read it, find them. If you don't know someone, come to one of us elders. We will direct you to someone who does know their Bibles and it can help you. One of the things that my roles as um, spiritual formation pastor is to help people grow in their knowledge and their relationship with God. So, uh, I'm going to be rolling out in the next two weeks formation classes for this, for this church. They will probably be offered uh, after the service on Sundays. Um, there will be things from simply how do you daily enjoy God in the Bible, uh, theology classes, New Testament surveys, Old Testament surveys. That's part of my job here at this church to help people do that. So um, we'll begin rolling those out soon. Uh, every uh, Wednesday nights, the first, second, and third Wednesday of every night, excuse me, Wednesday of every month, um, I'll be in the classroom right there going through the book of Philippians. I had about five guys last week, and the whole purpose is not to control our love for God, but to see what's really here in hopes that God would ignite it for us. You can check online for other Bible studies as well. If you think you have the ability to lead a Bible study, what are you waiting for? There are other people who aren't as equipped as you. That's one of the reasons why I started my Bible study a couple years ago. I was just like, I got all this stuff. What am I doing? And I just 
went for it. I didn't really care. I mean, who cares how many people show up? That's not the goal. Number two, help your kids to know God. And the earlier, the better. If there are no logs in your children's heart, how's the fire going to be lit? Um, in these are just practical things. So like um, in the weekly sermon uh, study guides, which I'll be posting online uh, starting this week, there's going to be a family discipleship section. If you don't know how to, again, no one is a pro at this. Just start doing it and then find someone who thinks they know what they're doing and see if they can help you. And I realize that some people think that teaching your kids about the Bible and God is kind of like indoctrination. Here's the truth, though. If you're not indoctrinating them with the truth, they will be indoctrinated with something else. It's not about whether or not they are. It's who's doing it. Period. And you may be of the the camp that says, well, I'm more about just kind of like letting my children um, choose freely for themselves. Uh, That assumes that their heart is innocent. And number two... That is an American doctrine. The only, the only way for you to be truly human is to be able to freely choose whatever you want to choose. That is an American doctrine that you are implanting in your children. Your job, God has placed the responsibility upon you to begin to teach them true knowledge of God so that when the Holy Spirit does come, flames can be lit. Oh, the day... Oh, the day when little Reese and little Livy are loving God with Daddy and Mommy. So we're cramming Bible verses in there. We're just stuffing them in. I'm going, Holy Spirit, you better bring the heat, man, because if you don't do it, it's not going to happen. Number three, listen to biblical teachers that focus on God and not on you. Two kind of like indicators. Number one is Bible exposition, not experience exposition. What is that? Ugh. Um, there's a difference between like taking a text and pulling out what's really there, making it clear, and then applying it, and talking about an experience, pulling truths from that, and then applying it. I've seen this done a lot. People will tell a massive story and they'll extract a truth as if that is inspired scripture, and they will apply it. That ignores all the intricacies and the nuances of the Bible that are utterly essential for having a clear, accurate picture of God. Another indicator is the preaching gospel-centered, not man-centered. Let me give you an example. Zacchaeus was a man, a wee little man was he, You know the story? Zacchaeus went up in the tree, the sycamore tree. My wife knows this story. I went to a church one time. The pastor preached on this passage. And the crescendo of his sermon was, how was Zacchaeus able to see Jesus? He was able to climb up the tree. Here's the point, guys. We have to be trees to help other people see Jesus. Now, that's not heretical. Is that bad? That's not bad. But the only thing I walked away thinking was, okay, I gotta go be a tree. Got it, okay. (sighs) Let's go do that, got it. And then, and I'll drop a name because he's a good teacher. I went to Tim Keller's church and it wasn't Tim Keller, it was another guy preaching on the same exact story. And the crescendo was just as Zacchaeus had to climb up the tree to meet Jesus, he didn't have to do that because Jesus climbed up the tree of the cross for him. Worship. One focuses upon Jesus and his cross, and the other focuses upon what you and you have to do. Do you see that there's a big difference? Same, it's amazing. Same passage of scripture, completely different worlds. Number four, know God for the sake of killing your lust. And you may think, where does that come from? 
1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 5. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles, who do not know God. What's causing the insatiable passion of lust be out of control? They don't know God. If you are out of control in your lust, could it be, could it be you don't know God? Because if you knew this God and his glory and his greatness and his cross, and you look back at that sin, you say, why would I ever give you the time of day? I've got Christ. Get to know God for the sake of your lust. Last thing, pursue love for God with all of your might. Another controversial thing I might say, I, I don't think the Bible would say that love is essentially a verb. I realize it's a popular slogan. People say love is a verb. But when I read the Bible, love for God at its essence is an affection. It's a noun. It's a thing that is in your heart. Psalm 1611. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 36, 5 through 6. How precious is your steadfast love of God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. John 15, 11. This is Jesus. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. I remember when I, back in college, when I first had my big, um, I kind of really changed in my relationship with God. I began, my, my passion for him really kind of went through a great surge, and I had all this energy and all this like, oh my gosh, I want to do all this great stuff for God. And people, everybody kept telling me, whoa, careful about the passions and the feelings and the, ooh, careful. Don't get too excited. It's not about the feelings. Everyone kept saying that to me. And I remember thinking, but this stuff like thrills me. Why, why, why should I like stop what's happening inside here? If this love for God is, if, it, if love for God is knowledge of God producing great intense emotions and affections for God, let him loose. As long as it's the truth that's causing it. Again, if you divorce the two, that's when it gets crazy. Last thing and I'm done. I wonder if, if some of you in here might be thinking, I hear what you're saying. And I think you might be right. But if I'm honest, I feel nothing. My head and my heart are 10,000 miles apart. I feel nothing. What do I do? What do I do? This is why we're going to end on the cross. It'll be up on the screen. Romans 5, 5 through 8. And hope does not put us to shame because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That's an experience. That's what we want. Hope does not put us to shame because the love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who can give it to us. That's a subjective experience. How does it happen? Next verse. Four. Four. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one might scarcely die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good person one might dare to die. But God demonstrates his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
The main thing I want you guys to see is the relationship between the subjective experience in verse five and the objective truth in the rest of it. What causes the subjective experience? Meditation upon the cross of Jesus Christ for you. If this is you, and you're simply, you see that the Bible's saying this, but you're simply saying, I feel nothing. I can't tell you to just make yourself feel that way because you can't control your affections. So the only thing you can do is meditate with your mind upon Christ's cross, death and resurrection for your sins to reconcile you to this all-satisfying God, as John Piper puts it. Which is why we're gonna be taking the Lord's Supper. And um, if right now, I don't, don't, don't rush, you don't have to rush to take the Lord's Supper. Um, if your heart is just bursting with joy, come and take quickly. But if right now you're just kind of like, I feel nothing, maybe just take some time and say, God, it grieves me. I know I should love you. I don't feel it, though. And confess it. It grieves me, Lord. It grieves me. Help me. Help my heart love what Jesus Christ did for me. And then act in faith and walk toward the table, trusting that he will come through. If you are not a Christian, and you do not believe anything we're saying today, we ask that you not take of the Lord's Supper. Um, it's for those who actually believe it, because you can't remember something that you don't believe. Um, the crackers represent Jesus Christ's broken body for you. And as you take it, meditate upon Christ's broken body for you. And as you take the, the juice, Christ shed blood for your sins. His blood had to be shed for your sins to reconcile you to God. Uh, come up as you feel led. Um, that is all. Let me close this in prayer, and we'll take some time to do this. Father, I thank you so much that you have so wired us that our hearts should be set aflame with love for you by first knowing you. And just as we get to know someone before we love them, you have revealed your son in your word. We know him and our hearts love him. I pray for anyone whose heart is just simply they feel nothing and it grieves them. that they would know that you love a broken heart. You are compassionate toward a broken heart. You will not despise a broken heart. You are tender to a broken heart. And that they would know that you're there to help them. And that you may direct their hearts to love you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.